Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to episode two of season five of the SG Explain podcast. Now I have to say hello to two people, Elliot and Shamian. How's it going? <laughs> Why do I get the feeling you felt like that was a bit of a chore just because you have to say one extra person's name? We're just getting used to this dynamic, I know. <laughs> yeah, we spent four seasons like just saying hi to each other and, and now we need to plan for a sequence of events right of talking to like in, as a threesome now we gotta figure out like speaking orders like who goes first is it Elliot is it Mian is it me well you know we were writing off uh, a great first episode on birthing right we literally birthed the season uh, with episode two I thought to really explore a topic that's been uh, something I've always been fascinated by right who are some of the first people living on this island, right? Mm. Pulau Ujong, that we mostly know as the mainland. I, I just know it wasn't Sir Stanford Raffles. Uh, that's kind of my Sir position. Raffles. <laughs> that was my position. <laughs> a fact that we've established through multiple episodes. Multiple seasons. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. But basically the group that we're going to be talking about today and the whole uh, topic is the Orang Laut. And it's such a fascinating community because, you know, they've been part of this island, this ecosystem for a long time. And actually the way that they've assimilated into Singapore is also a big story and it wouldn't do any justice for the three of us to just talk about it. So we're actually talking to someone who is part of the Orang Laut lineage, right? I, I'm so happy to have Fedaus on the show. Fedaus, welcome. Hello. Hello. Hi, guys. <laughs> Yo. Welcome, welcome. Thanks for having me. You are a fourth gen Orang Laut and you're also the founder of Orang Laut SG, which is an initiative to preserve and share the stories of the Orang Laut in Singapore. There's an awesome website. People need to go check out. You're also, I went to check out your LinkedIn for now as you are also an award-winning <laughs> digital storyteller and marketer. Wow. So, you know, props, your props are due. Oh, thank you. <laughs> why don't we start by by you telling us, you know, why did you start Orang Laut SG? Like, what's the, what's the motivation there? I actually had the idea for the longest time, maybe like five, six years ago. But of course, you know, I, I didn't really have a lot of uh, time in my hands. You know, 2020, in the middle of pandemic, a lot of my friends, also including myself, right? I, I think we start to really think about what is important to us. I basically started around in the middle of the pandemic, right? I became really close to my family and my mom would actually bring food um, to the table, like um, food that she actually cooks, like the asam padas, for example. Aww. And she would tell me a lot of stories behind the asam padas, like how she used to live on the island, you know, um, the, the kind of uh, difficulties to actually catch that particular uh, type of fish. And for me, that's really heartwarming, right? I really get the time to really connect with that story. Even though she have told me these stories for the longest time, many, many times. Um, but during the pandemic, I really start to have this greater sense of, you know, who I am, my roots. And I really wanted to just share most of the stories that comes from my family um, of Pulau Macau. So... A little bit of context, um, my family members used to live on Pulau Smakau up till the year 1977. But of course, before that, my ancestry can be traced to the Riau Islands as well. And also the settled communities at Pulau Saking and also Pulau Samakau. I really wanted to, you know, share this narrative. At the same time, I was still working at WWF Singapore. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about conservation efforts in Singapore, right? A lot of the times we talk about Pulau Samakau. And Pulau Samakau as a landfill, you know, it will be filled up by 2035. That is one functioning space for us to actually throw we are rubbish, right? But it will be filled up. And the narrative is that it is just a landfill. And every time the name Plus Macau comes up, I get a little bit 
triggered. Know, would I say annoyed? Triggered. I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to be. A mix of emotions. Excited and also like a little bit. Ah, it shouldn't just be about the landfill, right? Mm. So that's why the page started to just reclaim these narratives. That's super awesome. I love that he said those key words reclaim the narrative which is what we're here to do today before Fadawas told me about Pulau Samaka being a place where actual people lived yeah in my mind I was like oh the government probably just took an empty piece of land and decided to put rubbish on it but no there were people living there people had a whole life there which is something we'll we'll talk about a bit later on as well so today in SG Explained fashion we're going to be hearing Fadawas' story together with some of the background and research really just to provide a full picture you know why don't we start by talking about who exactly the Orang Laut are yeah and this is for those who really have no idea who the Orang Laut are you don't speak Malay at all don't worry we've done the research for you so Orang Laut is a Malay phrase used to describe an ethnic group of seafarers who used to live along the Strait of Singapore Peninsula Malaysia, as well as the Indonesian Rural Islands. And so Orang Lao, I believe when you translate it from Malay, it actually directly means sea people or people of the sea. So there's a bit of a nomadic sea, gypsy kind of vibe going on here for good reason, because they occupied the maritime zone surrounding the Strait of Malacca. And so during the period when the British thought Singapore was uninhabited, the Orang Lao actually has been or had been using the island as one of the places to live in. So this was way before we were colonized, there were actually people living in Singapore already, the island itself. Ferdowus, can you tell us a bit more about the roles the Orang Laut played in the history of the region? So based on my research, I am no historian anyway. I do this research based on my interests, just to give some context and a little caveat as well. Based on my research, anthropological studies have suggested that the Orang Laut communities, they are the hunter-gatherers um, and they depended on the sea life for livelihood. And they have been around even before the common era, the CE or AD. I think they also, you know, had a strong alliance to the then um, Shiva Giant Kingdom. And also that has also principally derived from the Pula Bintan, which is Bintan uh, today. So um, the Orang Laut basically traced to about pre-20th century. Of course, today, you know, basically the Orang Laut of, of Singapore has been widely different. What has been recorded in today's context, um, specifically Singapore, we could look into the uh, Orang Kalang, um, which is basically the people who have settled at the Ka Kalang River. Uh, and also we look into um, the Orang uh, Salita, uh, which is more towards the Johor Straits. Um, and thankfully, they've also been, you know, assimilated themselves within the Malaysian groups of Orang Asli, and they've been recognized as part of the indigenous groups in, in, in Malaysia. Of course, we also have the Orang Salat, the Straits people, you know, basically these are the individuals who actually live at the mouth of the Singapore River. Based on the records that we have in, in historic, historical context, uh, they traded fish and fruits um, with passing ships, but actually I'm sure they have done more. <laughs> but of course, um, there's a settled communities, which are the Orang Pulau's, um, which where my family is from as well. Settled communities who used to live on Pulau Sudong, Semakau, Sekijang, um, and, and so on. Um, and also, you know, these would also branch out to other islands, northeastern islands like Pulau Tekong and also Pulau Ubin. So we, people lived on Tekong before. I mean, this is me being stupid here, but <laughs> I guess before we went there, there were people on Tekong, la, right? You can just assume, Elliot, that as long as there was land and water and food, people, people lived there. <laughs> Elliot, this is the very reason why we have Orang Lao SG. <laughs> very good. Very good. Yes, yes. In season one, 
right, which is what, four years ago now. We actually did a whole episode on pre-colonial Singapore and we gave an overview of the Orang Lawut in that episode, but we didn't actually deep dive into it. But exactly what you're talking about for now is like the fact that there were people and communities who lived in this region who were trading with various groups of people and actually, they were politically significant, right? They were uh, kingmakers in some ways because they helped the Sri Vijayan rulers. They were part of the, the power transfers between people. It was, it's such an interesting backstory to Singapore and the region that actually we tend to forget about. But as someone who's lived with that sort of heritage and that history, right? How does it feel to be connected to that past? You know, me finding my identity in Singapore, right? I always thought that, you know, me growing up as a Malay person in Singapore, it's just you know, me understanding what is Malay today. For me, having to know that I have this kind of lineage is so important to me um, because thankfully I'm able to trace that. But I couldn't say the same to my other Malay folks who know that, you know, they are connected to other parts of Java, um, but it ends there. Right? And, you know, uh, and I could also say to my uh, Chinese folks as well, Chinese friends um, who would have, you know, some lineage to China, but it ends there as well. So thankfully for me, I'm able to trace my roots. I'm able to mm. at least taste a little bit of how life would have been because of my connection with my grandfather and also, um, you know, my family members. So I would say I'm, I'm deeply on it. Um, and and I, I don't think this would be a situation that um, could, could be applied to everyone else in Singapore. So with whatever knowledge I know, whatever life experience I have, I would love to share them because I think it's important. It reminds me, Elliot, of when you went back to Hainan. It's so interesting that this narrative pops up because for Chinese people, it's actually something that we take for granted every single time. It's like, hey, you know, like you're Hainanese or you're like Hokkien or something. Like that is something that they know about and they could possibly trace if they want to, but we always fall into this pit trap of just being one ethnic group, right? Just Chinese or just Malay or just Indian. And from all the episodes that we've done about race uh, and a broad spectrum, we start to find all these hidden gems and the little branches that they can tell different kinds of stories with. So I, for one, am very happy to dive into this topic. In fact, maybe we can jump into a little bit about the presence in Singapore, right? Like the Orang Lawut's presence in Singapore. Now, of course, Fidawas kind of explained a little bit of this at first, but um, the Orang Lao were living in Singapore and along the adjacent like, Johor coast before the arrival of the British in 1819. Now, Suku Galam, one of the Orang Lao divisions from the Batam archipelago, uh, had a settlement of boats and huts near the mouth of the Singapore River, not far from Malay Kampongs, right? Uh, the Malays and the Orang Lao were governed by a Temenggung. I thought you have to learn this in uh, social studies. <laughs> Bold of you to assume, Rovik, I learned anything in social studies. <laughs> Bold of you to assume I was learning in school. <laughs> yeah, do you remember the famous Temenggong who like interacted with Raffles, you know? So yes, the Malays and the Oranga were governed by a Temenggong, uh, who was in turn a subject of the Viceroy of Riau. Now, the Suku Galam served the Temenggong as boatman and supplied him with fish. And their headman acted as a messenger for the Temenggong. So a few years after the establishment of Singapore as a British trading outpost, some of the Orang Lao moved to the seafront at Teluk Saga and Selat Singke on Pulau Brani, a small island of Singapore. Now, the earliest description of the Orang Lao may have been by the 14th century Chinese traveller Wang Da Yuan, who described the inhabitants of Tamasik, uh, present-day you know, Singapore, in his work Tao Yi Zhu Lue. Uh, the Orang Lao appeared to be one of the many Malay groups in the region, 
Do you think it's true that the Orang Lao were the, were the first inhabitants of Singapore? This would be reflected in the historical context already. Because if you look into um, Singapore's context, right, a lot of it has been through the colonial lens. Being a descendant of this lineage, I would definitely would love to share whatever context I have. Um, but of course, in terms of historical context, um, it can even be traced back to pre-12th century. 14th century? Get lost, man. I mean, we're looking at 12th century now. I am no historian, but when someone asked me whether we are the first inhabitants right I, I I just get a little bit like annoyed like why do I have to defend my history like you don't be such la. but of course you know <laughs> <laughs> listen to this podcast <laughs> <laughs> I think this is a really important question because it sets context of you know who were the first inhabitants and do we have the right to say we're the indigenous people of the land um, you know do should we have like special rights things like that so I think there's a lot of like uh, political reasoning behind it as well but I think um, the Orang Laut of today if you ask me whether there are still Orang Laut inhabitants I say no because in Singapore at least um, I think there's no way we are able to still practice our island traditions or the Orang Laut traditions right because a lot of the restrictions that we have today and because of like you no know, reclaimed lands and um, relocation right we, we just can't you know that's part of the controversy I guess of, of the whole topic right about being indigenous about being able to claim that stake. And actually, that's something that's interesting about the Singapore narrative, like who are indigenous people here and what rights do they have? Because around the world, you have countries that are basically trying to, to bring up that conversation. Who were the original inhabitants? What was the contribution they made to this country? And why is it not recognized in that portion, right? So that's super interesting stuff. Right after the break, we're going to hear a bit more about Fidelis' stories and his family and their heritage. But before that... It is quiz time. Quiz time! Jingle! <laughs> here's, here's a question. So one of the cool things that the Orang Lawud actually were responsible for and they created was this thing called the Sampan Panjang, which was a boat that was famously used by them. And even the British and the Europeans were actually very fascinated by this boat. Now, one of the functions was to transport goods. What was the other function of the Sampan Panjang. I'm so scared because we've got a fourth gen Orang Laut with us. And so we can't afford to screw this up. We can, we can afford. For me, and if you screw this up, like everyone will be like, oh, you know, but no one has expectations for me. They expect <laughs> me to screw this up. I'm going to go on a limb and choose this answer because I know Elliot won't guess this answer. I would say racing. Ooh, racing is a pretty good one. I was going to say it was supposed to transport goods and go exploring. I thought they would they would go out and explore the world because sounds fun. Nah. I mean, if I were if I were there, I totally want to explore. It's like, hey man, Saint John's Island, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> well, for now, do you know the answer? Yeah, I would guess race as well, and I think we call it Jong as well. That's new to me because yeah, you're absolutely right. Shamir <gasps> is right. The answer what? is racing. <laughs> Again, I have solidified my role in this team. Well done, Shamin. I actually learned a new fact because Fudala said that there's a name to the races which is called Jong. So it depends on uh, the time period. There are various names to it. You know, they, they sometimes they call it Kolek Laya as well um, or Kolek Lumba. Lumba means to sail, um, but they usually use a Jong. Yeah. It was such an interesting research point because they were actually proven to be superior to European yachts in racing. Uh, there were actually a bunch of races that were conducted with the Orang Lawud back in the day. And nice. uh, Dr. Bern Castle in 1850, this guy who wrote some stuff about the Sampan Panjang, basically described it as very light boats that were elegant in shape, 
and they were propelled by paddles on the team sails made of mats. Unfortunately, it started to decline after the first wharf of Tanjung Panga came into operation in 1866 because essentially modernization came about. Opening of the Suez Canal made many steamers flood the areas of the Sampan Panjang, which resulted again in the decrease of their number. But this is such an interesting like artifact and like you know piece of our history that I thought was very cool. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Fadaus is going to tell us a lot more stories about, you know, how it was like growing up, maybe stories he's heard from his parents and grandparents about the life as a Orang Lao. So stay tuned. It's crazy to think that we're in season five of the SG Explained podcast and you, the listener, have been a great part of that experience. If you like what we've been doing over the last few seasons and you want to support some independent podcasters, here are three ways that you can do so. The first is to subscribe and that's by just clicking the subscribe button or follow button on any of the platforms you're listening to us on. The second is to share. Share our content, our episodes with people that you think would enjoy learning about the Singapore identity and challenging some of the preconceived notions that they may have. And finally, directly support us by clicking on the anchor link in the description area where you can make a small contribution that helps us support some of the costs of producing these great podcasts. Thank you again for being part of the SG Explained family and we look forward to making many more great episodes for you. Right, and we're back from the break. Hopefully, you guys had a, a good time hearing that ad break that we put in there for you. <laughs> Just coming back to Fadaos' story. So this is this is really the part of the episode that I'm looking forward most to. We know that a large population of Orang Lao lived in Palazzo Macau before being asked to move out. Can you give us a picture of what was life like before the move? What was going on in Pulau Sumacau? On Pulau Sumacau, not everyone identified themselves as an Orang Laut. Uh, maybe some of them actually identified themselves as an Orang Pulau, which is specifically Islander. My family members, specifically coming from me and also you know the people who are around me, we identify ourselves as Orang Pulau and Orang Laut because of the connections that we have to the Riau Islanders. My family, we do have a very distinct lineage. I, most of them actually still lives on um, the Riau Islands, such as Pulau Sarang and also Pulau Terong. So we do visit them often, you know, um, before maritime laws were in place. Um, they even visited Pulau Macau, come bearing gifts because it's just like a few hours away uh, with their sampan. And in return, my grandmother would actually buy baguettes from mainland Singapore, the French baguettes, the long ones, because they cannot find bread on the islands, right, or where they live. So they actually like bread. <laughs> so um, <laughs> When we actually do visit them before COVID, we'd actually bring like a lot of baguettes and you know, customs would ask like, why you bring so many baguettes? Are you selling? Say, what are we selling baguettes <laughs> for in the real <laughs> islands? We're basically giving them um, the bread love because they actually love to eat bread. On Pulau Smakau, before we were asked to move to Singapore from the island, in 1977, Pulau Smakau was really a communal space that has a really strong um, sense of gotong royongness togetherness I would say in the 1960s right they had an installment of uh, the jetty uh, the very long jetty it was really important to the islanders because before the installation of the jetty what happened was that um, the teachers the people who visited the island the nurses for example they would have to uh, birth their sampan on just low tide so during low tide right it get really really muddy so what they would do is they would walk onto the muddy area of the beach uh, just to get on land. 
Um, so this happens to teachers as well, right? They have to like, you know, uh, roll up their pants, um, make sure that, you know, it doesn't get dirty. But of course, you know, these kind of things you, can, you cannot run away from. Lah. So it, it will get dirty. But in spite of that, they will still teach the kids at school, you know, in, in that kind of state. They, they had this really strong connection with the students as well. And also the people who live on the island, um, like my grandfather, other than transporting people, it was also a space for people to actually come together. Uh, they would bring water and put on top um, of the jetty itself because um, on Pulau Macau there wasn't any running water they had to rely on the well and and the water is actually being collected through Pulau Bukom so as you know Pulau Bukom is a petrochemical space yeah that's where that's where Shell is today right <laughs> flashback traumas yeah <laughs> <laughs> they actually built up a, uh, the space quite nicely la. so they had running water they had electricity you know and, and the villagers would actually go there the islanders would actually go there to just fetch water from various islands and they would place all these um, you know, buckets of water right just on top of the jetty and they use it communally um, so I remember like visiting there uh, I would wash my leg there I would take my showers there you know we, we even use water for cooking as well so it was a really important space lah, um, the jetty itself there are other developments on the island we, they also had a balai right yard which is a community centre we come together um, and also they had a postman also as well there and um, they had a nurse's hut there's this roving nurse um, coming from one island to another right Right. They would come to the island um, every week. Um, so every week, you know, if anyone who needs medical aid, uh, they would have to line up just outside the hut. The nurse would come in and, and look at you if you're pregnant. They, they would try their very best to, you know, uh, assist you. If let's say it's raining, right? Monsoon season especially. Um, waters are choppy there's no nurse for the week or for the month even you know oh, wow. and even this goes to uh, schools for teachers as well because sometimes you know water is really choppy you can't even go to school and yeah basically free day of no school for my mom and my aunts lah. <laughs> I, I share with you these little nuggets of information of stories right because these are coming from a live experience which I think are really important so the community of Pulau Macau um, I think it's made up about 600 individuals at its peak the population grew because a lot of the southern islands, right, from like Pulau Bukom, uh, Pulau Sudong, etc., a lot of them will be, were asked to leave the islands first. Um, and then they didn't want to move to mainland Singapore. What they did was to occupy the island of Semakau or uh, Seking, which is just beside Semakau. A lot of the things that they did together involved um, weddings, um, celebrating Hari Raya in their own special way and, you know, have this really strong um, bond as a community. And, you know, when my family members, you share with me all these stories, right? I, I can really sense this, this, the, the sense of loss a very deep sense of loss, um, which is very painful to hear, um, but of course also very endearing. It's not only losing a space, right? It's losing livelihood. It's losing a lot of their um, stories that can only be etched in the memory. So for me, it's against time because, you know, if I don't document these stories, I don't know what's going to happen. They're at they are in their 60s already, reaching their 70s. For our listeners, you probably can't see this, but, you know, the three of us are just enthralled listening to this story because yeah. it's such a, we're being transported to this time and space, right, where, where life sounds so different. You talked about how Hari Raya celebrations were different in their own unique way. Can you give us a bit of a picture into like, you know, what were some of the things that were done differently 
on Palazzo Macau. What was some of the Maybe... food that you ate as well? <laughs> I'm yeah, curious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think let's let's deep dive into um, Hari Raya. So, you know, Hari Raya, I always ask my mom, um, is it similar to how Hari Raya is today? You know, if you go Hari Raya today in, in, a, in a Malay household, right, you will see mm-hmm. you know, the abundance of kuehs, food, rendang, all those. They didn't have those back then, you know, on the island. Palazzo Macau, when they celebrated um, Hari Raya, right, to make the kueh, they have this mold that is shared amongst the villages. So, they have this one roving mold, you know. So, for example, okay, are you done with a mold? So, I'll, I'll make my kueh first and then I'll pass to the next house. You know, so it's, it's that kind of vibe um, because they come from hardship, right? And, and you know, the bond is so strong. Um, they would even sometimes come together to make kueh together. Lah. And during Hai Raya, um, because them being islanders orang laut slash orang pulau um, a lot of the food that they eat uh, revolves around seafood and also the vegetables they forage on the island once a year um, they would eat chicken sometimes even they would eat um, other types of meat like uh, goat or, or kambing Hai Raya was a bit different and when they cook um, the chicken right they just cook in curry <laughs> um, so it's, it's a bit different lah. Um, usually the, the staple revolves around like um, uh, ikan bakar which is like barbecue fish you know being tossed into the fires and, and really you would enjoy the freshness of it all and, and um, cook in like really simple broth like asam pedas or ai asam um, things like that so there's a lot of um, ingredients that they use, which can be commonly found today. Very simple ingredients, but it packs a punch. One thing I saw online was that you were doing like pop-up menu, right? And I was quite jealous because by the time I discovered this, I don't think you guys were doing it anymore. Are you guys going to do it again? Actually, yes, we are doing it again. So um, we have a few sessions upcoming in May, I think, um, in collaboration with NHB. So we might be doing it. Yeah, that's our favorite thing. <laughs> you got to give me that preview free link, you know, because I, I want sure, For sure, for <laughs> sure. For those listening, go and check out uh, Orang Laut SG's website because there are these awesome pictures of some of the food. It's an awesome display of like some interesting stuff. Since we're living in the modern era now, how do you think modernization has affected the Orang Laut and, you know, where can they be found now? If you were really to look into whether there are Orang Laut today in Singapore, I would say no um, because I think no one is in Orang Laut um, I don't think they would be able to keep up with the lifestyle and because of modernization right a lot of these traditions has been vastly changed and transformed into what urbanization looks like la. so I would say the remainder of the Orang Laut community right would be the settled communities um, of, from the Orang Pulau um, you know from from, from Plos Makau for example from Pulau Sudong uh, these individuals um, who may sometimes refer to themselves as Orang Laut as well dependent on which family members you speak to which tribes you speak to um, you know these individuals they can still be found at West Coast Park uh, or as you call it Pase Panjang before West Coast Park you know it's a really nice looking park today right back then that was a space for me and also my family members to actually go to often because that's where we actually dock our boats, um, our sampans. So that was really an important landmark because we go, we go to the Pulau's, um from West Coast itself and it would take us about 20-30 minutes. And um, when the relocation happened, right, a lot of the islanders actually raised this issue. Are, are they able to you know, continue the island traditions? What's going to happen? And um, based on what I understand from the islanders, ex-islanders, they told me that they had um, an agreement with the then MP that you know we, they would be given like a 
space at West Coast Park, uh, basically loaned from SLE to actually, you know, park their boats so they can basically continue the island traditions, go out to sea, because a lot of these individuals still rely on on the sea for sustenance, right? And and you cannot take someone out from a certain space and expect them to adapt in the city. Today, we would definitely try to practice our island traditions and um, West Coast Park is definitely one of the spaces uh, that is that we have left with. But at the same time, um, the space is getting smaller and smaller, Elliot. Really small. <laughs> um, and it pains me so much because the yeah. stretch of a West Coast Park, right? It used to be available to us, but right now um, it has been um, turned into water breakers, at least... Um, 90% of it and we are left with this little space um, with original sand of, of Pasir Panjang you know and um, my grandfather's boat um, used to be harbored there and I think now we are only left with like our, our extended family members and the number, number of boats are decreasing as well and um, based on the current sentiments right that I, I've heard of and also know of the authorities are not allowing um elder family members to pass down the license and the right to birth their boats, the space itself, to their descendants. So, for example, my uncle has passed on last year. And because of that, we have learned that the authorities did not allow my uncle, my late uncle, um, birth to actually be passed down to his descendants, um, which is very painful, right? So I deduced that they want to take out the entire space and a lot of these traditions are going to be um, disappearing like eroding in, in, in front of me in my very eyes which is like very painful because you know it's me against time at the same time it's also there's other external factors that I cannot actually help there is a concerted effort actually for this story to be told so that more people can rally behind it and as with any sort of culture the moment it's gone it's it's very far too late by then and I think there are real stakes here yeah there are real stakes exactly when I first reached out for now I mean to be completely honest I was just thinking about you know, capturing a story and helping you, you know, share your story with more people. But it sounds like, no, there's something real at stake there. There's a loss of heritage that and practices and island practices and indigenous mm. practices that actually as a Singaporean, I'd be concerned about. On the ground, you know, we need to know these stories in order to fight for them as well. I think it's a big part of why when we started, as you explained uh, all this while ago, was to find these kinds of stories to amplify to find a voice and to make sure that we don't forget or lose them. So all the more, I think I'm very grateful that, you know, for those you're willing to share uh, this, this fact of knowledge that ignorant, usually ignorant Elliot wouldn't like, get to hear about. Losing a space is one, but it's also losing traditions, right? And for me, um, why I started Royal actually partly is because I want to be able to keep up with my traditions. I want to be able to, you know, let the tradition lift on. If let's say, we do not have space to birth our boats or, you know, have, have, have opportunity to actually acquire new ones, right? What's going to happen to our island traditions and, and the people who are interested in keeping this up? And like my relatives and my brother, for example, right, who genuinely went out there to get a license and, and he's like an avid fisherman. He learned a lot of the fishing, fishing methods from my grandfather, my uncles who are, you know, an active community member as well. And, and what's going to happen to that? So, Part of Orang Lao as she is also to look into advocacy as well, um, basically to amplify their voices, these sentiments. Um, I think the food part is one tangible aspect that I would love to share with other Singaporeans, right? But the advocacy role has increasingly become so important to me because I need to be able to voice, um, voice out these these issues, you know. And I think uh, you 
guy is giving me this opportunity to actually just add this out. It's a great start. Um, but of course, you know, I, I am still in the midst of trying to find ways on to work with um, authorities, for example. Also working with like, other individuals from uh, different islands as well, like mm. such as uh, Pulau Ubin, Pulau Sudong, just to come together, to raise issues together. Thanks for those. I mean, it's very clear your motivations for, you know, all these efforts uh, within Orang Laut SG. And I think, I'm sure our listeners can agree as well, just hearing you talk about your heritage, talk about your lineage, it's very inspiring. And it, I don't know, for me, at least on a personal level, it's so introspective. Like when I was hearing you talk about, you know, your history and you being a descendant of the Orang Lawut, um, I was thinking about my own lineage, you know, about what Elliot said about how, yeah, we're Chinese, but then we actually belong to a certain like origination within the Chinese people as well. Like I ask myself, okay, what am I? I'm Chinese, but I'm also Hokju. And I would meet other Chinese people and hey, they have no idea who the Hokchus are. You know the fish balls with like meat in them? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's from my province, you know. And I get this strange like excitement when we cook these fish balls at home because I inherently hate fish balls. But every time my mom like would cook them in soup, I just feel like a strong sense of, um, wow. I'm eating what my people from back then invented. <laughs> so for Dawes, in your opinion, what can us as listeners do to participate in this advocacy that you just mentioned? There's many ways, you know, we could actually acknowledge um, Indigenous history, um, Orang Lao slash Orang Pulau's existence as well. I, for me, immediately, right, um, just to share with you guys some of the plans I have um, in store uh, is to set up an alliance of sorts um, with the other islanders um, of Pulau Ubin, Pulau Sudong, um, I think also the Orang Kalang Biduan as well. You know, so these individuals, what we plan to do is to come together and raise issues such as this and to offer solutions and to propose solutions as well. Um, I think a lot of times when we look into um, how we can support these individuals, right, is to first acknowledge their existence. At least for me, that's like the bare minimum, right? Um, to also share our stories. Uh, but at the same time, um, really look deep dive and maybe try to understand on like some of the issues they are facing and, and try to give like an opportunity for them to um, speak up and, and share their issues. Lah. So a lot of the times, right, these individuals um, who are still actively going out at sea, they are a little bit scared of the authority um, because that's how they are. You know, they're just... Uh, they're really quiet. They just uh, do what they love. And a lot of times these issues are not being heard. And I think it's time for us to amplify these issues as well. Um, you know, be it through Orang Laut SG, be it through other channels that you may hear heard of, such as um, Once Ubin Journal as well. Um, I think Once Ubin Journal is a really young chap trying to document stories from the Malay uh, historical part of things, uh, which I think is very refreshing, right? Because you see Pulau Ubin is just like a space for you to just cycle, but actually there's more to it as a lot of historical, um, you know, connotations to it. So I think that's what he's trying to do um, through One Subin's Journal. So I think um, support this kind of um, initiatives, you know, Orang Edgy, um, people like uh, One as well, and Asinda Daud, who is also like uh, an advocate for um, island tradition, you know, and also a, a great, great performer. So there's many ways we can actually support us. And 
I think um, the, the the initiative that I'm gonna, basically I mentioned earlier is called it's going to be called ASLI, uh, which is Alliance of Singapore's Living Islanders, um, wow. and we'll be raising such issues. Um, and also at the same time, what we want to try to do is to raise funds because we need to properly find channels and also avenues right to support these community members. Lah, this is something that is upcoming. We would definitely love to share with you guys more once we have more information. Thank you for those. I mean, this episode was meant to be almost like a historical episode, but it's it's such a living episode, and it's so current even in its own way. So, uh, for now, thank you so much for coming on our show and sharing this with us. I think it definitely gives us more texture on the topic of Singapore and what it means to live in this country as well. So, appreciate your perspective and your and your story. On that note, uh, we are at the end of the episode. Do make sure to check out the rest of the season coming up on our Spotify or any other podcast platform you're listening to this on. Check out Wrong Lao SG's website. We're going to put that in the description area. And yeah, we'll see you in the next episode, everyone. Bye. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye.